Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Welcome back, Stuart. Thank you. It is the Labor Day long weekend, a chance for a bit of kind of reflection on uh, the summer that was. And I think one of the issues that I want to dig in with you guys off the top of the show is housing. We had a big week on it um, recently in the Hub. Um, and one thing kind of caught my eye, there's a columnist that we really enjoy publishing, uh, Steve LaFleur, who wrote a great piece for us this week, uh, just pulling out some of the the numbers, the hard facts about housing in this case in Canada's largest city, Toronto. Um, I just want to run these numbers by you. Just let's let's just reflect on them because I think there's something bigger going on here than just the dismal science economics. So Steve uh, figured out for us that if you take the average price of a, a home in the GTA, so not the cheapest, not the most expensive, the average. You need a qualifying income. This is to, to get a bank to give you a mortgage right now of $225,000. So that would put you within the top 10% of income earners in you know one of Canada's most kind of prosperous metropolitan regions. And that's not all. With high interest rates, which add to the unaffordability crisis, so you've got record high housing prices and then you've got very high seven percent now you know some variable rate mortgages you need to come up with a down payment of another two hundred thousand dollars plus so you put these two things together you know an income at least in the gta you need to qualify with two hundred twenty five thousand in income 200,000 plus in a down payment just to get your foot into the average house in our largest uh, metropolis in this country. Sean, what the heck does this say about, I don't know, about people's expectations, about, I especially think of younger people, you know, starting out their professional life, their personal lives. I sense that this is just a, a millstone around the neck of the freaking optimism that we need in this country right now, which seems awfully in short supply. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think that's precisely right. Uh, it, it, another way to get at this is uh, last weekend, we published a piece by Jeremy Roberts, a former uh, MPP in the Ontario legislature. And in fact, one of the youngest um, Ontario legislators in, in the province's history. And in the piece, he showed that, um, well, the homeownership rates nationally are something like 70% or so. Um, they fall precipitously um, by age, of course. And millennials now in, in the GTA, homeownership rate is something like um, 30%. Um, and even that is inflated 
um, because of course the 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 age generation covers everyone from me <laughs> in my early forties uh, to someone who who isn't yet thirty. Um, and, and so yeah, I think it it not only does it uh, dampen the kind of optimism that really I think is fundamental to social unity, social cohesion, economic dynamism, and so on. Um, but it, it it creates something more pernicious, I think, which is increasing zero-sum thinking, um, the potential for political radicalism, um, and something I've written a bit about at the, at the Hub, which we can get into here, um, the risk of a kind of intergenerational politics. And I think we're seeing that play out a bit in, in the past uh, several weeks. Um, um, reflected in the in polling, um, and, and so it seems to me, if um, our political class wants to avoid the kind of fraught politics that we're seeing uh, reflected in other countries, including, of course, the United States, then there's an onus to get ahead of these issues and stop um, a kind of intergenerational fissure manifesting itself, in which we are essentially pitting um, older Canadians against younger ones in the housing market, but but also in other areas, including public spending. Um, you know, we can talk a bit about the lack of childcare spaces. You know, Roger, you sent an email earlier this week about lack of teachers in some parts of the country. Like I, I think the promise of Canada uh, for those born in the late 1980s and into the 1990s is not being delivered. Um, and I think that's something that pol pol policymakers and politicians need to take seriously. Stuart, what's your take on this? Um, you know, we're starting to see, I think, interestingly, I, I don't know, an, an attempt by the Liberal government to to think about housing, which we haven't seen anything specific, but they're certainly flagging maybe there's something coming. My sense is that Sean's right, that, you know, these polls, Stuart, that have just shown this kind of collapse in support uh, amongst millennials uh, for the government, the incumbent, you know, Liberal Party of Canada polling at, at numbers with millennials. I just, I thought, I thought I had to look at them twice to believe that they were right. And I wonder, Stuart, if you think that part of this goes back to things like housing and this feeling of just, um, I don't know, upstairs, downstairs. It's like a frigging Downton Abbey economy that we're living in where you have one set of people's assets that have gone up uh, over the space of, you know, really since the great financial crisis and live in this different world upstairs. And then, you know, everyone under the age of 40 uh, is downstairs <laughs> hoping to get upstairs. But boy, does that stairwell look steep. I, I was actually just referring back to a piece that, you know, Ben Woodfinden wrote for us two years ago. Um, talking about, it's a very Ben phrase, but he said that we'll have some kind of bourgeois aristocracy of people who own a home and then the people who just didn't get in on time. And I, I'm, that was two years ago. He has a throwaway line in there about how, um, you know, conservatives don't do well with young people. So maybe this could be the thing. And, you know, two years later, Ben's working for Pierre Polyev and the numbers are changing. And I think there's probably something to that um, because it, that hopeless feeling, I think, is probably the most toxic thing you can have in a society. It's something that yes. is like a meta problem that affects everything you try to do and everything you aspire to. And I, I remember coming up, um, you know, I was the 
child of poor immigrants. So I would come out and kind of do the math on home ownership and then say, how does this even work? I don't even understand the math behind this. And then it occurred to me years later, some people have parents with money and they can actually use that to get a house. Mm -hmm. And I think that now is far more prevalent that people are aware of that. Um, people younger than me, I think Sean and I are probably just at that line where we either got past it or you didn't quite get past it. Um, but people younger than me are now far more aware of those divisions of some people have money and they can pass it along to their kids and some people don't. And that's inequality that I think can be a real problem in society. Let me just quickly, because we have a unique perspective on the show here, which I like to bring in from time to time. And I'm doing this without any warning. So hopefully she'll agree to play along with me, which is Amal Adder Grisman. She's our producer of this podcast. There's so many great things at the Hub. She's in her 20s. Amal, what are you hearing from your peers? What, like, I don't want us, me to sit here as a 50-something and extrapolate that your generation is really ticked off about this and is feeling a kind of malaise setting. And like, correct me, is that right? Is that how people in their 20s look at things like the housing market and their own kind of life expectations? Do they feel kind of trapped downstairs in the Downton Abbey analogy? Yeah, um, I think it depends on who you're talking to. Recently, I was just talking to a friend of mine. and He's moving out of this townhouse that he's been renting with three of our other friends. It's currently getting destroyed because developers bought off the land. And it's really unfortunate because that used to be our meetup spot every time we all wanted to get together. But he told me that him and his girlfriend, they luckily found a really nice apartment down by, I believe it's by the harbor front. And he's going to start a life together with her. And then eventually over time, they're planning to buy a home. Keep in mind, though, my friend, luckily, like he has a great job. He has great savings. He's going to be OK. Like, I'm not worried about him, but he is the rarity. He is not the common 20 something year old that has everything kind of figured out, ready to purchase or even rent a space with their future partners. A lot of us were feeling that the idea of home ownership is a dream. And unless your parents own a home. The idea is that they're going to pass the home down to us. So luckily in my situation, my family owns a home. Like we're okay. Like if anything were to happen to me, like it's okay. Like I have a place to stay. That is not the case for a lot of, for a lot of us. And Good one point. of the, and one of the ideas I want to bring up that's kind of missing is family formations. So I'm having this sort of idea and sort of feeling that we're like this whole bourgeoisie class, that people are kind of dating and they're kind of being aware of more financial decisions. Who will you marry is a great financial decision in your life. And I think a lot of people are kind of becoming aware of like, oh, okay, if I'm going out with this person, will they eventually buy a home? Will they eventually be able to like yeah. support a family? And it's really right. interesting. It kind of feels like we're in this Jane Austen era where Mrs. <laughs> Bennett is kind of freaking out saying, oh, I have five daughters. Who are they going to be with? Are they able to live a sustainable <laughs> life? So it's kind of it's kind of feeling reminiscent to that. Yeah, great insights, boy. That's a lot like Ch China, Sean. You know where, you know, men can't marry unless there's an apartment that they can show the family the prospective bride. I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, ton of insight there, Amal. Um, earlier this year, we had um the demographer Lyman Stone on Hub Dialogues, um, talking about some work he's done on family formation in Canada. And one of the fascinating insights in his work, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, um, is that kids have become essentially a luxury good in Canada. So contrary to popular conception, 
um, that lower income households have more kids. In Canada, it's the opposite. Um, uh, and I think that reflects in part the delayed family formation that Amal's talking about for those who are struggling to get a foothold in the labor market and then to get a foothold in our our housing market. Um, uh, so uh, as Amal says, there are these secondary consequences that have huge socioeconomic consequences. Can I just make one other quick point, though? Um, you've you referred to Downtown Abbey, uh, Stuart and, and Amal referred to a bourgeoisie aristocracy. I, I think it is an important point. Um, you know, we focus so far in the conversation on the generational divide here, but there is a big class divide as well. Um, you know, just think about it. If if you need to be in the top 10% to own a home in, in the GTA, it means that the 90% of the population, those who fill all the jobs that um, that essentially support the 10% that can afford to live in the city have to live elsewhere. Um, so the people who are pouring your coffee, the people who are taking out your trash, the people who are, um, you know, doing all of the various jobs that make places like the city of Toronto function, they're commuting in from Niagara Falls. <laughs> um, it really is a kind of um, extraordinary development in which the vast majority of people, the people who make the city go, actually can't afford to live there. It, it just strikes me as fundamentally unsustainable. And um, it's good that finally the political class is kind of turning its attention um, to these issues. Sure. Let me get you to channel your inner Scotsman here, because, you know, this is kind of not what we supposedly signed up for here in North America, right? Like we were supposed to create a society that didn't have an aristocracy that played down uh, sharp class uh, divisions of opportunity and access and privilege. And I gotta say, like, I just feel like this country over the last, you know, half decade or more, we're recreating some of these like horrible habits of, you know, 18th, 19th century you know, Europe that supposedly we had some revolutions here on the North American continent to kind of deal with that crap. Um, and here it is. And I guess, you know, what the heck, what the heck happens now? Do we just go along with all this and the people that can afford houses in our big cities are the children of people that have accumulated enough assets, which are usually the people that have stayed in this country the longest people like, you know, my family that, we're fortunate enough to have multiple generations live in Canada and not immigrants. They're not, you know, they don't have parents who got on the property ladder like my parents did in the 1960s and bought a house in downtown Toronto for $65,000. Like this whole thing just starts to lose its purpose. It starts to lose the sense of what, you know, North America was supposed to be all about. Yeah, I, I think it is a relatively recent change too, because as I'm the, I'm an immigrant. I moved here in '88 when I was five, and my wife's family um, moved from Lebanon in the '80s also. And there's just a really cool story of when my parents bought a house in the early '90s. It was in Whitby, Ontario. My dad worked in Toronto, and we were like, "Oh my God, we're living out in Whitby now. We have to <laughs> commute every morning, and it's like an hour on the 401." And now, you know, people commuting to Barrie and Niagara Falls—it's almost unfathomable. And I think 
the thing that we had going for us and that my wife's family had going for us is there was hope. There was a ladder and you could see the rungs and you could see what you had to do and everything seemed to add up. The math seemed to work out. And I think that something has definitely changed. And the trouble with housing is there's no quick way to solve it. And even if you do solve it, it hurts other people too. So there's going to be people pissed off. There's going to be people hurting whatever happens. So it's a really intractable problem. And it's one of those ones that when you need optimism in society, it just sucks it right out. May I, may I just make one other point, uh, guys? We've been focusing on the kind of political and social uh, effects of 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 these issues. They're also big economic ones. Um, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver are our most dynamic cities. Uh, they represent about a, a one third or more of GDP. They are effectively screaming at the top of their lungs for workers. And housing is becoming a break on the ability of people to follow those market signals. There's been a lot of research guys in the US um, that high housing costs in major cities like New York, Boston, San Francisco, and so on um, has has reduced US GDP. Um, and we're having this conversation uh, a day. We have new data out from StatsCan. Uh, GDP per capita has basically now been flat or declining for five consecutive years. And one can't help but think um, that the inability of people to be able to live and work in our most dynamic cities is part of that story. So um, it, it really does, you know, we published an article, I think last week or two weeks ago that performed really, really well called the housing theory of everything. And I, I think increasingly, that's the way that our a political class needs to think about this. It has all of these effects from economic growth and living standards to, as Amal says, um, family formation and how you started it off, Rudyard, our own kind of sense of our future and opportunity individually and collectively. It all ultimately comes back to housing and our political class has failed all of us when it comes to this file. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be the big issue, I think, for a period of time. And we're going to continue to Hopefully, uh, at the hub, try to contribute to this in a positive way, bring forward some, you know, solutions and ideas. Let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to go meta. No, we're not going to talk about the social platform. We're going to spare you more discussion of Bill C eighteen. No, we're going to go meta and talk about how we're thinking about uh, our futures. You know, we just had a conversation, albeit you know, kind of pessimistic. Uh, but if we go bigger picture, if we step back, is there a case for optimism? Maybe not on housing, but is there a case on optimism about some of the kind of fundamental assumptions that we're making about our society and its future? That conversation for you right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050. And we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us 
make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, guys, I promised uh, I was going to go meta with you, so just bear with me here because I've been thinking about something. You know, this has been a tough period of time post-COVID, and there's been a lot of negative, a lot of things legitimately you could be negative about. <laughs> Negative about the ability of government to deliver essential services like healthcare. We have these bizarre stories coming out of Quebec this week about the government literally begging adults of any age with almost no credentials to come into schools to discuss, you know, teach kids. I mean, you could just have this sense that, you know, the wheels are falling off the bus. And I, I just wonder, Sean, let me come to you first with this idea that we look at these these real things, and I don't deny the extent to which they really impact people's lives, but we look at these things in the context of some theory of like absolute decline, like it's getting worse. It's going from 10 to nine to eight to seven to six to five. When in fact, maybe what we're experiencing here is really more convergence that Canada and other developing countries are simply moving towards some larger global average where the rest, all those other countries that we used to think of as developing, have moved out of, you know, acute poverty and privation, have have created large middle class and are arguably competing with us more effectively, are challenging our preeminence kind of internationally. And what we experience as decline, I guess this is my point, is really the phenomenon of convergence. Um, that's not to say that our living standards might not feel lower, that we may not feel that there's as much gap anymore between the West and the rest. But Sean, surely if if you believe that it, what's really happening here is not absolute decline, what's really happening here is convergence, that maybe suggests a different set of prescriptions and policies and attitudes to deal with that phenomena than one where you say to yourself, oh, my God, it, this really is the fall of Rome. And we are, you know, in a profound collapse, which is unfortunately what I feel like a lot of the narrative is, especially on the center right in North America right now. Yeah, it's a ton of insight there, Roger. Um, you know, in, in a way, I think if you needed to summarize really succinctly the political economy story of the past 20 or 30 years, we've essentially experienced an increase in inequality within developed countries and a decrease in inequality around the world, um, which is sort of what you're getting at, that there's been growing global convergence when it comes to incomes. And that's obviously a good thing. That's a function of billions of people having been pulled out of poverty um, because of the forces of markets and trade and commerce and globalization and all the rest. Um, but there has been something of a trade-off um, um, because there are certain skills and occupations and places and so on that have within developed countries that have um, performed better 
as a result of those different forces. And so I think one of the reasons you do see this source of pessimism reflected in a lot of commentary, including, as you say, on the right, is it's capturing the rise in inequality within our borders. And I, you know, that it seems to me is something the right does need to get its head around. It's not enough to say, you know, we're, um, we're growing in the aggregate um, or, um, you know, all, all high tide raises all boats. I think after 20 or 30 years of this experiment, the truth is that's not precisely right. There are certain places and people who have um, struggled as a result of these different forces. And it seems to me if there's not an effort on policy on the part of policymakers to address those concerns, the risk is we end up kind of throwing the, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. You know, that is to say, we get these politicians and others who want to uh, reverse the trends of globalization, notwithstanding um, a lot of the benefits that have come. So that's a very long and kind of convoluted way of saying, I think you're really onto something. Um, and I, I think it, 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 your key, the key point is we ought to think about the challenges ahead of us through that lens, mm -hmm. as opposed to a lens that, you know, um, that the country and, and, and Western societies more generally are just on this path of decline. Yeah. Let me rephrase it and put it to Stuart and get his thoughts on this. I guess what I'm saying, Stuart, is that, you know, especially amongst populists right now, there's a, there's an argument that it's like, it's our fault that we're we're morally decadent. We, uh, our institutions no longer function. Uh, everything that you're feeling that's negative in your life is about us and decisions that we've made or failed to make. Or again, a lot of this is very kind of moralized and portrayed in terms of, you know, the character of people and institutions and our, our Western societies. But what if it's not, what if it's just simply that we're not we're not doing as good a job competing and we need to think more like about a competition agenda and how to actually make our economies more competitive and more productive. And that, yeah, some big stuff has happened in the last 25 years. You know, the internet's, you know, Tom Freeman was kind of right. The world is flatter. People can compete more directly with, with each other. And the relative decline that we're feeling again is simply one of convergence with you know, a new kind of global reality. It may not be comfortable. We may not like it, but it, it isn't that we have some like moral stain, you know, deep inside our national character that only the populist leader can expunge because that's the theory, Stuart. I fear on a lot of the, the, the rightier parts of the center, right? It's this like cultural, this deep cultural argument that I think gets wrong what's actually freaking happening in the rest of the world for the last 30 years. Yeah, I remember someone saying to me in the early 2000s, I think when I was in university, globalization was a big topic. And they said, you know, if 10 people around the world come into the middle class and we lose one in North America, what do we think about that? Um, obviously you think that one could be me. So, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of opposed to this. Um, but that's, I think that is what's happening. and. The way that I've always seen it, it's hard not, it's hard to live in Ontario and not feel a kind of sense of malaise. I find it really worrying. And especially post-COVID, even when I go to Calgary, I think, man, the people here walk faster. They look happier, like they're doing more things here. And I, I think that is something that if I'm if I'm being realistic, I think it might be just a, a phase of complacency, which usually comes from 
doing really well. I think we've had a good time in Canada for a while, and then you just get used to that. And you can see by the way that this government talks about these things, you know, all governments do this to an extent, but there's no sense of costs or trade-offs or anything. It's what are the things that we need? We need some daycare. We need this. We need that. We're not going to raise taxes. We're not going to do anything. We'll just keep it on the credit card. And I think that that all political parties are used to doing is going to have to end at some point. And the I, I'll never forget this line that Heather Schofield wrote in the Toronto Star about productivity, where she said, political parties don't use that phrase because in focus groups, people tell them it sounds like they're going to have to work hard. And I like this kind of stuff, you know, it, it may have to end like this kind of thinking may have to end um, if we're going to get out of this. Um, I didn't mean to come across quite so hard line, but I mean, these are the things no, that no, kind no. of worry me when I'm looking at my daughters. Rudyard, I'll turn it over to you in a second um, to elaborate on this um, interesting theory that you have. But before you do, um, it's Friday, September 1st. We have an episode with uh, David from launching um, before this this one is up. And David and I, incidentally, sort of spoke about some of these issues in the context of um, growing evidence that China's economy seems to be hitting something of a wall. And we were talking about um, a broad set of issues. And David had this line, uh, Rudyard, which you know encapsulates sort of what you're getting at. For the past several years, maybe even decades, Canada has been essentially free to party like a 28-year-old. Um, or pardon me, a 21-year-old. And increasingly, we're entering a world where you can only party like a 38 year old. You know, that is to say you can have some fun. Um, but the next morning, you probably don't want to plan that 10K run. Um, and I think he's getting precisely to your point, which is um, cap capital isn't going to flow as freely. Labor is a bit more scarce. Um, poor countries are increasingly ambitious about competing at the kind of cutting edge value added parts of the economy. And countries like Canada can't just rest on its laurels anymore. I think that's kind of what you're getting at in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look, my final contribution is just, well, we'll put it in the show notes, but there's this website that's just kind of blown my mind that we actually use a bit of the hub called Fiverr. I think it's F-I-V-R-R. -R. And basically what it is, is it's like, it, it it's a bazaar, like a marketplace of, people around the world, primarily in the global South, who will do your website, who will create, you know, a social media strategy for you that will produce promotional videos. Um, they are like strivers and thrivers. And what's so cool about this site is they're all ranked, they're reviewed, they're starred, they're like, there's a trust network that the technology, the flattening that Tom Friedman writes about has built, and then an access to this pool of like amazing talented people. And I know other people that have used the site, we've used it at, had really positive experiences. And these people are hungry. They are technically competent. They are ambitious and they are ready to go and they're going to work. They work super, super hard. Again, they are strivers and thrivers. And, you know, it's not a popular message. You can't say this, you know, politically in Canada, but we need some of that, man. We need some of that sense of like, you know, the world's a hungry place and somebody's going to eat my lunch unless I like, unless I eat it first. And this is happening. It's happening right now. We're using Fiverr. That's just one of thousands of different platforms out there now 
that are real practical services, which have now become, you know, disintermediated, connected, you know, and are rushing to these lower cost, enthusiastic, you know, engaged providers. That is the reality of the world there. And you're right, Sean, like we need a bit of maturity. We kind of have to grow up and become that 38 year old that says, you know, there's some bills to pay here and I've got to show up on work at time tomorrow. So let's give you the last word, Stuart. Um, I know we're sounding a bit like, uh, you know, kind of rock ribbed bootstrappers, but we just need some balance. I'm not saying we need to swing the entire economy or all of our psychology over to some, you know, Anne Randy and Peter Thiel universe, but just a little bit of whiskey in the water. Yes. <laughs> Let's get going. Yeah, I will say that every time I go to Alberta, it does fill me with that little bit of hope too. And I do feel like when you look at the stories coming out of China and you see what's going on with their economy and you look at the pros of living in Canada, which I tell my, I talk to my six-year-old about this all the time, that this is a great place to live. And I do believe my own rhetoric. Um, I think that when you're talking about this stuff, there is that tendency to get target fo focused on the negatives, but um, I'm still optimistic about Canada. That's the like starry eyed immigrant in me. Yeah. Again, it may not be like some, we may not be in a doom loop people. It may not be like irreparable problems with us that we can't fix. It may just be again, more reorient our minds globally and understand that there's this massive convergence going on and we need to compete in that new reality. And we have, you know, beliefs, trust, systems, ideas, uh, things that we can bring to that competitive effort. Uh, but it's a question of attitude. I think it's like a changing of the attitude. We're not just the West, separate from the rest, sitting on our pedestal, 21-year-old, cracking open the next, you know, Molson Canadian. That's not going to work anymore. Um, Sean, let's end with you. What's the Spear family up to on the long, the Labor Day long weekends? Are you well, partying like a 21 year old or? <laughs> no, thanks to you and the team for, um, being patient with me this week. We were hit with COVID. Um, I think Ouch. we got it from Stuart and his family. So, uh, we're coming out from a bit of a haze. Um, uh, but uh, we have a great week next week at the Hub again. Um, as always, we're kicking off our dialogues with um, a Marxist, self-described Marxist, Freddie DeBoer, uh, who's got a, a great new book out about the social justice movement, um, some great book reviews. Um, you know, we're we're not taking our foot off the gas, that's for sure, Rudyard. Oh, here, here. Okay, guys, have a terrific Labor Day weekend. Uh, we kind of talked about labor. Yeah, I, I like that. I didn't even intend that. We did it. You're a genius. Okay, guys, have a great uh, long weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. 
The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.